Volunteer Roll is the Duke Cromwell Bay House Short Stories and Poetry for December 29, 2023. The last show of the year here. I'm Terrence O'Donnell, your Irish Calais. And I asked you to come in and sit down for a wee bit. Let me read you some more stories and poems again. I've got five short stories and a poem for you. All are science fiction and fantasy. And lastly, Robert G. Longfrey's fifth chapter from his new book, Sanctuary. So I want to start out with an apology for last week's awful readings and sound effects editing. I took on too many stories and poems. I lost steam in the middle somewhere so that it sounded like I was falling asleep at the wheel. When I listened to it, I was embarrassed. So I'm going to make a change as we transition from 2023 to 2024. I won't be reading quite so many stories and poems going forward so I can provide you, the audience, a better performance. I also moved all my advertising to the closing portion of the show. I want to promise to keep trying to make things better for you. Thank you to everyone who listens, and just know that we're all fallible and make mistakes. I'm no exception. After all, we're all human in our various sizes, shapes, and colors. We may all speak different languages and have different cultures, but I would like to think that listening to a good story or a poem can make our troubles go away for a time, no matter where we are in the world. So now with that, my first story is called, What Really Killed the Dinosaurs? Aliens, But It's Not What You Think, by Andrew Dart. He published this in Predict. You humans are so smart. Oh, yes, you are. And so cute, too. You dig around in the ground with your fancy pickaxes and funny little brushes. Playing in the dirt, it's so precious. Later, you do a few tests with big, expensive electron microscopes and serious faces. Then bingo, it's case closed. It was a big space rock what done them in. You know, the dinosaurs. They're nothing better than a lived experience. That's what I says. Gather around, children. If you want to know what killed the dinosaurs and hear it from someone who saw it with his own eyes, sit down. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Get comfy. A bit closer now. Okay, let's begin. A long time ago. Don't interrupt. It's one of those stories. This one really did happen. Now, where was I? Oh, yes. About three billion years ago, there was a brilliant cook. His name was Gary. He hailed from the outer rim of this here galaxy, the Milky Way. Yes, that's what you humans call it, isn't it? So Gary was on his way to take the position of chef at one of the finest restaurants near Sagittarius, at the Galaxy Center. Unfortunately, he was still young and didn't have much money. This new job was his big break. Fame and fortune would be his. Once people tasted his incredible food, there would be no stopping him. But because he was so poor, he was flying in an old, beat-up, second-hand space van, one he'd gotten cheap from a gravity-wave surfer dude he'd met back home. Can you guess what happened next, kids? Yes, it broke down. And not just anywhere. It was here. I mean, right here, in this godforsaken neck of the woods, in orbit around this loser planet, Earth. Gary was stranded. Back then, aliens pretty much kept to their own species, not as broad-minded as they are today. Wow, you can get away with anything in this galaxy these days. Don't get me started. So the upshot was no one would help Gary. However, Gary was quite an observant lad. He noticed that many of the long-distance space haulers would stop nearby to have a break. The solar system, while godforsaken, 
is in a pretty strategic position, given its proximity to the rim and center of the galaxy. After a few centuries, Gary had a stroke of genius. Open a diner. Well, it only took one or two of those roughneck space haulers to taste Gary's miraculous culinary creations for the world to travel around the hauling community. You humans say light is as fast as you can go. Well, word absolutely travels faster than light. Pretty soon, every one of those long-distance space fiends was planning their routes with a stop at Gary's Diner to try out the fantastic cuisine. The diner that orbited a funny blue planet in a backwater solar system. Gary soon had more than enough money to buy a brand new ship to take him on to his restaurant job. But he was having way too much fun now. And who wanted to work for someone else when you were already your own boss in a thriving business? News of Gary's heavenly cooking gradually leaked it to the general spacefaring public. Before you knew it, hundreds of millions of sentient beings were being a path to Gary's Diner airlock every year. After the first 500,000 years, Gary wanted to expand the menu. However, the organic pickings were slim within the nearest three parsecs. He began importing ingredients from places across the galaxy. Everyone loves home cooking, eh? With every passing billion years, Gary's menu became increasingly ambitious, with exotic plants and creatures being added constantly. Eventually, there was nothing that Gary's kitchen wouldn't attempt to prepare. Produce deliveries would come at all hours of the day to ensure he could keep up with his clients' outrageous appetites, and these come as, from as far afield as the Andromeda Galaxy and Magellanic Clouds. Oh, I, are you getting a bit restless now? Yes, yes. I'm getting to the dinosaur bit in a minute. Please settle down. Let me get on with the story. So Gary, while being an excellent chef, was not so good as a businessman. And as for regulations, well, following them was not his strong suit. The diner had grown organically over the millennia, and everything about the diner was haphazard. His biggest problem was waste disposal. There was no garbage bin service way out here, and Gary was too cheap to contract it out privately. Besides, who needed a professional garbage disposal service when an uninhabited blue rocky planet was just a few hundred kilometers below? Gravity is free, isn't it? But Gary's biggest mistake was that he never installed rubbish receptacles at the exit of his diner's airlocks. The Space Environmental Agency will shut down a fast food joint a minute for such a significant infraction of the regulations. But as Gary had never seen those laws, he was oblivious. His logic was once the food was bought, it was the customer's problem. Can you imagine? The following scene played out repeatedly, thousands of times daily, for billions of years. The daddy alien had sauce all over his face and tentacles. Best damn ribs I ever had, he explained as he let out an enormous burp. He was looking the last morsel of barbecue sauce off his digital suckers as he looked over to the back seat of the spaceship where his kids were sitting. Bones, food scraps, and drink containers littered the area. The kids were bouncing up and down. Daddy, Daddy, can we have more wings? They were delicious, they scraped. And they come with another toy, too, they added. Daddy Alien looked over to his wife, who was sitting next to him. Can you clean up the mess your kids have made in the, on the back seat? We have a long jump to make it back home, and those scraps will stink up my ship. They won't fit in the stasis units, he, he pleaded with his wife. She gave him that look. So they're my kids now, and paused momentarily, then dutifully added, Yes, dear, I'll take care of it. She had carefully collected all the leftovers, 
plus all the food debris and sauce that had fallen on the upholstery and put it in a trash bag. The back seat and her children were spotless. Suddenly, her antenna began to wave haphazardly in a panic. She couldn't detect any waste receptacle nearby. There was a big sign on the outside of the Gary's Diner. No dumping on a premises by order of the management. She looked around, totally at a loss, until she noticed a shiny blue planet down below the diner. Then, a naughty dark smile crossed her face, like the sunrise on her home world. She turned and said, Daddy, you see that planet down there? He nodded. Well, can we just pop down there on the far side so I can um, dump this stuff? Daddy Alien looked at her incredulously. That's against the law, he finished with a humph. Mummy Alien said, no one will see us. I said the far side. Okay, okay, sure. Daddy Alien responded with a blank look on his face. And with that, they roared out of the diner's docking port, made their entry burn on the opposite side of the blue planet. They did a quick scan. No one was watching. Then dumped their rubbish quicker than you could say, I'll see you in court. As you can imagine, the food scraps, bones, sauces, etc., built up substantially on the surface of the rocky blue planet over the eons. Gary's Diner was in business for nearly 3 billion years. It only got shut down about 65 million years ago. See, I told you I was getting to the dinosaur bit. Gary's Diner had been in breach of the guidelines forever. It shouldn't have been a surprise when officers from the Space Environmental Agency raided the diner and shut Gary's business down. He was devastated. The diner had been his whole life. To make matters worse, the local council ruled that his illegal operation had caused irreparable harm to the nearby planet and he had to make restitution to fund his ecological rehabilitation and restoration. Gary was bankrupt. The local council demolished a galactically famous institution that had been Gary's diner. As the council itself was a corrupt organization, the demolition had been awarded to the lowest bidder and so was botched. One of the most enormous chunks of the diner came down in a place to humans now refer to as the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico. It was a pretty significant impact. It did much more damage than Gary's dumping over ever did. But of course, the council covered it all up and declared it a galactic nature preserve so no one could go near it and find the truth. Now, now, kids, settle down. What's that you say? Gary's diner killed the dinosaurs? Well, 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 I thought you might say that. And you'd be dead wrong. I'll let you in on a little secret. There were never any dinosaurs on your precious dumpster of a planet Earth. There's no need for yelling or hitting. Settle down. And don't pull those faces. It wrecks your innate human cuteness. Yes, you are so cute. And smart as whips. Quiet. No need to be rude. Are you settled? Good. Let's continue. Now let me ask you. How do you know there are any dinosaurs here? Oh, it's because the human scientists tell you so. So how do they know? Because they dig up the bones. Any pennies dropping yet? All of your precious scientists have worked out the evolution of life on your planet. They did it by digging through the geological layers of rubbish and food scraps from Gary's Diner. In reality, they discovered the gradual changes in Gary's menu and the proclivities of a alien appetites that dined there. Early on, Gary specialized in slimes, soups, and porridge. Later, he branched into salads. Next, it was crustaceans and seafood. Over the final 250 million years of his business, Gary was famous for his barbecue dinosaurs, the most popular section of his menu. And those dinosaurs never came from here. Ew, that would be dumpster diving. They were shipped from a star system about 35 light years away. 
Now, kids, don't walk away. Don't shake your heads like that. I promise it's all true. And I'll be able to prove it once I get the documents from the local council. I have a freedom of information request pending. I'll get back all that money that the corrupt council stole. We can split it. Yes, that's it. We'll split it. 50% for you to divide 8 million ways down here equally, and I'll keep the rest. I'm doing all the hard work, after all. What's my name, you ask? Well, it ain't Gary, that's for sure. That was a bit of a humorous story. I hope you liked it. My next story, Born a Savage, and Messiah's Last Breath in the Oceans of Europa by Charles Bastille in the Kraken Lore. Their songs disseminate throughout the sea, serenading its underwater currents with a rhapsody spun from millions of years of history. They sing of the rise of their great matriarchs, dynasties that heralded stories encompassing eons. They sing of the great changes that roiled Earth's oceans long before the dawn of humanity. Their songs describe the wreckage humans wrought too, during a period that, to them, has happened within the wink of an eye. The existence of humans, Tully Dam used to tell me, has been a mere interlude, a crack in time, barely discernible, soon to end. I joked with her often about that. End on Europa, I asked? Earth? Both? She never marveled at our technological prowess the way we do. Our gargantuan interplanetary ships did not impress her. Showpieces, she called them. That said, the dolphins sing, also of Cousteau City, whose sphere dominates the horizon along this stretch of Europa's vast underground ocean. Their songs celebrate the days when prior generations arrived on Europa with only a few submarines, a few dolphins, a few humans, and a set of AI nanobots accompanying them. They sing of swarms of replicating bots smaller than bacteria helping our ancestors discover the vast caves that open to Europa's seas and build a towering city of magnificent architectural beauty. Lengthy ballads speak of how our ancestors harnessed the telepathic skills of dolphins to learn the language of the European sea creatures they encountered. Now the dolphins sing to celebrate the death of the Messiah, Twilly Dam, as if it were a good thing. Their song is not my song. Their joy is not my joy. Twilly Dam and I frolicked in the water, our internal clock set. We were talking about the locals. The powerful Jovian tides would soon fully submerge Cousteau City and its protective sphere, forcing the waters here to close violently with the ceiling of the massive cave that housed the city. When I talked to Twilly, I used my mind, she used hers. I don't understand the size behind it. Why we could both frolic in the waters surrounding the city, hear each other think, much less understand what was said. For her, it was natural, organic, evolution. For me, it was bioengineering but it's still beyond my reckoning. Twilly's telepathic skills were such that she could harness the energy of the European ocean's entire sentient population if she wanted to. She sometimes did, and I swear that when I first watched her do it, she did it to show off. They're not sophisticated folks, she said, as I sent the submariner ring coursing through the depths of the European ocean. Moments later, Twilly returned to me with the ring around her snout. I snatched it, that sent it beaver, but she returned just as quickly. Nor, she proclaimed, is this a sophisticated toy. Not fast enough, I asked. It's fast enough, methinks. No intelligent agility. Perhaps you need to add that to the prompt next time you manufacture one. I hadn't considered that, I acknowledged. 
My focus was on speed. I tried to prompt the AI to tell the producer to make it just a tiny bit faster than you. You're a devil, but not a skilled one. Try again. Now? Now is next time? I think now, Twilly said. I swam to Twilly and rested my palm on her head. Okay, you silly beast, I said. I loved her desperately. I dove into the water, expecting her to follow, but she didn't. I telepathed instructions to the city. The city responded almost immediately with another ring. I grasped it when it arrived. Happy, I asked. The spirit mother deems it always be so. She answered with a response I had heard a thousand times. I launched the ring. This one sped through the ocean currents a bit faster than the last. Twilly had difficulty keeping up. When the ring darted around one of the large, billowing, translucent plant formations that dwelled in the underwater landscape, Twilly darted with it. The ring disappeared behind a gelatinous monolith of sentient vegetation. So did Twilly. I telepathed her, saying, You call them unsophisticated. I call them barbaric. Your people showed them alternatives to their natural violence. You're too kind. It is our way, she responded, as it has been and shall always be. You brought peace to their warring clans, I wondered where the hell she was. She caught that thought, too. I did no such thing, and I'll be there soon. I hate it when you read my mind like that. If you hadn't want me to hear it, you wouldn't have telepathed it. I could never keep up with Twilly intellectually or physically. I could outlast her underneath the water surface, though, because I had gills and she didn't. A divergence from our human cousins on Earth, gills were a necessary augmentation for humans in an environment such as this, where the only land was in hospital rock within caves buried under sheets of ice that were kilometers thick. I never left the protective sphere of the city, but Twilly roamed at will and became a teacher to the indigenous creatures that roamed these seas. You're outside the sphere again, aren't you? I asked. I'm right behind you, you silly human, she replied. She pushed the ring, which adorned her snout, toward me. I snatched it from her and then rose to the surface. This time I hurled the ring high. It spun as it acrobatically climbed the low-gravity air surrounding the city, then darted to and fro as it dro drove toward the water. Tully was upon the ring long before it reached the water's surface. She soared aloft, a rocket of a being in this light air, arching high and capturing the ring in her snout as she dove back into the water. I tried to continue the debate. They would have killed each other off if you hadn't intervened. I was merely a catalyst for their better instincts, she replied, somewhere beneath the surface of the dark green sea. I gently reminded them of their inner truths. It's no more complex than that, my friend. As I recall, there was one who attempted to do such things for humans. There have been several, I replied, all abysmal failures. I considered our many wars and our many prophets. The universe is resilient. Humans will leave no more than a tiny scratch. You're mean, you know that, and kind of prejudice. I heard the clicks of her laughter behind me. I yanked the ring off her snout like I was angry, which I was not. I found it impossible to be angry at Twilly. When she disparaged human savagery, it was only because she was right. She had found the local population much more unamenable to the bravery of dialogue and negotiation and forgiveness in, in place of violence than either of us could imagine humans to be. This brings us to the next moment, her last moments, and my sadness. Was it singing I heard? If so, it sounded different this time. She had long warned that the moment would arrive. The human influence is a wound on other species, she had said more than once. An infection 
caused by bad soul on the wounds they inflict with such vicious frequency. Twilly was the daughter of the spirit mother who spoke to all her kind, whether on earth or Europa. No one doubted this. But something on Europa was changing. Fighting amongst the dolphins was becoming common. It's not that dolphins don't fight among themselves, but it had always been rare. It was never the pestilence it is for the humans. It never resulted in war. Throngs of angry dolphins administering questionable brands of justice had never been part of their history. That changed when a crowd of telepaths filled my ears with song demanding justice. Twilly Dam, they said, had violated the sanctity of the Spirit Mother ministering to the heathens of Europa. It was such a startling development that I couldn't grasp it. Throngs of dolphins filled the ocean around us. Their telepathic power lifted Twilly out of the ocean. Become, she told me, as her listless body was raised high into the air toward a fire summoned by a combination of telepathy and human-made nanobots. She knew I wanted to contact the city for help, but it was already too late. The flames flourished with a ferocious and horrible extravagance inside the oxygenated sphere of the city. My buoyancy was in the water became a cruelly ironic emphasis to my fear that the city would burn too. Twilly's end is too ghastly to describe. I, temps I sometimes think that she would want me to anyway, but even more, she want me to consider the contagion of human savagery, and a curious way her people, after burning her in the sky, began to worship her as their new goddess. My next story is a short one from David Pahor, Lady of Embrace and Spears Thrust. Not all Englishmen survived Mesopotamia. I cannot claim the gathering dusk caught me unaware. Indeed, I had planned it this way. The natives had run away the day we had hurriedly dug up the corner of her temple, breaking the clay relief of her winged self and the leashed lion. For four consecutive nights, one of my gentleman companions disappeared from the camp until only I was left. I surmised that only a brilliant campfire kept the moving patch of the night at bay, yet the flames invariably waned past the dead of night and in the morning a fresh dragging trail led into the desert. I am destitute and parched, hiding during sun's rain in the shade of our largest spoil heaps. But I will go out on my terms, my glinting six-shot pepper-box revolver firm in my hand. The light has finally failed to be replaced with a deathly breeze. The western ruby-tipped ridgeline dissolves into a violent black canvas of stars shimmering in the cooling air. She approaches as a stern shadow, breast heaving, hair flowing in the oppressing drought, her eyes an angry tint. Halt, my lady, or I shall be forced to discharge my sidearm, I cry. She tilts her head and speaks with the voice of a thousand women, bringing me to my knees. Do you know your offense? Yes, it is the greed of the people who send us here to plunder and our shallowness to be bought to do their bidding. The wind dies and I can hear the laughter of a city in the darkness beyond and the sound of river in the dried-up ancient channels of the Euphrates. The deity grins. Rise, too, and accompany me. I like a man who is not afraid to attack me and is brave enough to tell the truth. She, I stumble to my feet, and she catches my elbow, frightfully strong, sublimely sensuous. She takes me with her. The Kamekum's aide arrived with a half a dozen soldiers, and the chief of the nearest village at the dig site, and the scattered remains of the Englishman's campsite. They found two pairs of bodies a kilometer out, their throats ripped out, eye sockets empty, safer flies. 
but no earthly sign of the droughtsman, the earl's youngest son. When asked, a headman pointed to the broken clay slab of Inanna, goddess of love and war, and said that she sometimes acquires young men she fancies to wish them to her kingdom. The Ottoman soldiers laughed, but the Kamekim's aide ordered the camel train to move out before nightfall. He reburied the two pieces of the tablet himself, apologizing profusely. My next story is about alien contact. It's called The Janitor. First Contact with Aliens Couldn't Have Happened to a Nicer Guy by Dr. Casey Lawrence, again in the Kraken lore. The alien spacecraft landed in Woodstock, which was a surprise. No, not that Woodstock. The other one in Oxford County on the Thames River. No, not that Oxford and not that Thames either. He couldn't have picked a friendlier city. He landed his little ship in Vansistart Park, of all places, right on the splash pad, if you can believe it. Engine trouble, he said. He'd right run out of fuel over London, no, not that London, and coasted on down here. There are plenty of farms and parks between London and Woodstock, but with his little ship rocking and rolling, it was a miracle he didn't hit town hall. Well, so I said to the little fella, and he couldn't have been right more than four foot tall. I asked him what he needed, and wouldn't you know, he was looking for local government. And I said, well, I work for the mayor. And I do. I work in the mayor's office. So I said I could help him with that. It's a lucky thing I was there at the park. I was there with the kiddos. And it was just right place, right time. And he was real friendly, Viv. He asked me to call him that, Viv. He and I got on well. He even had a tool belt and overalls like mine, kind of. We loaded his ship into my truck and I sent the kids to their friend Gord's so I could take Viv to Jerry's house. I said to Jerry, I called him up on the way, hands-free, of course. I said to Jerry, you're going to want to meet this guy, and I tell him what happened. Viv tells me he works for, oh shoot, you know, I don't remember. It had a rather long acronym, and I was too busy looking at him when he said it. He was this funny greenish color with little tentacles and eyes a bit like a cat's. And Anyway, he tells me he was on his route, and noticed that our atmosphere was dirty. So, get this, he pops off course to let us know and sprang a fuel leak out by Mars. Mars! So, I get chatting with Viv. He has 38 kids back home. One of them is off to college this year, and he says he'd, he'd happily do a quick scrub for us if we refuel his tank. And I did tell him, I said, we'll fill your tank up regardless. But I had to ask Jerry if we needed any cleanup. I get Viv to Jerry's, but then... But by then, Jerry is on the phone with the Prime Minister. And Viv, well, he doesn't want to make a fuss. So he asked me to just fill her up, and he'd take care of the smog on the way out. And I'm thinking, there's no smog in Woodstock. But then I think maybe he's talking about the air over London or Hamilton. And I say, that would be mighty nice of you, Viv. So I asked Viv what kind of gas this ship takes. And get this, it runs in silica. And I say, shoot, all we've got at the station is gas or diesel. And he says... Why, that's why your air is so dirty, and we have a good laugh. But I can get the little guy some silica pretty easy. Don't you know? That's the main ingredient in regular old glass. So, I ask, how much do you need? It turns out his little ship only needs a few ounces of the stuff to get home. So I just take him to my place and give him a couple of glasses right off in Edegar. We got gifted a bunch of crystal glassware when my nan passed and never use it. The next thing I know, he's standing in my dining room, looking at the bay windows and holding a paperweight. And he starts crying. Viv does. And I think, oh no, I've offended him. 
but he's so happy, you see. Where he comes from, silica is rarer than gold. And he says, you're going to be rich. I say, it's just glass. But he thanks me for the stemware. So I give him the paperweight, too. And he says he'll clean up all the air for it. Normally, a full scrub would be covered by, and I still don't remember the name, sorry, Viv's agency. But since we're not paying taxes into the system yet, he would have to charge us for that sort of thing. But a couple of wine glasses completely covered the bill. By the time the news crews arrived and the helicopters and everything came, Viv was already gone. It didn't take him but a minute to grind up the glass and set off. And now they're telling me that all the greenhouse gases are gone. He went and repaired the ozone layer too while he was at it. Just clean up the whole planet's air for a couple of glasses and a paperweight. I don't get why everybody's so mad. I just helped a guy out, and it turns out he really helped us too. All that CO2 and methane just scrubbed right out with his fancy filters. But what do I know? I'm just a janitor at the mayor's office. Before he left, Viv said we should really pay into the system if we want to be put on his regular maintenance route. He'll pass our way every couple of decades and get our air sorted if we get into trouble again. He gave me his card, but once you know, I can't read it. His translator only worked on speech, I guess. He did say he sent one of his buddies to deal with the oceans, though. Did you know? We're crawling with microplastics. They can take care of all of that, but it'll cost a pretty penny, at least a window or two. Next, I've got a short poem for you. It's called Gabriel and Gabriella, Spirits Aglow by Bruno T. Now, this is one of those stories or poems, I should say in this case, that has a link on it that you could read even if you're a non-medium um, subscriber. So I'm just letting you know here, this is one of those stories or poems. A village, quaint, its charms so rare. House twins are unique beyond compare. Gabriel and Gabriella. Known by each soul. One glimpse what's past. The other foresaw the goal. Gabriel's eyes closed. To vanished days he'd stray. Where old memories in sunshine lay. Laughter from a school. Now silent. Festivities once bright. Now quiet. Gabriella's sight leaped to times unseen. Predicting futures where she'd never been. Forecasting weather with vision so keen. Tomorrow's secrets are on her mind's screen. Together a pair both rare and refined, past and future in their minds entwined. Learning from generations not their own, friendship like theirs is rarely shown. Trouble arose, a necklace went missing. Ms. Rose grieved, reflecting, a cherished piece from her mother's heart. The twins took up the remarkable part. Gabrielle journeyed through time's embrace, seeking the necklace, tracing its place. Gabrielle's visions, crisp and clear, a kitten was shown, the necklace nearby. Through sprawling gardens they made their way, where secrets hide and treasures lay. At dawn's first light, under a leafy cover, the lost necklace was discovered. The village watched, learned, and saw. Presence might, and without a flaw, the twins' hearts kind and pure, their acts and truth are most sure. Heroes and tales as stories turned, their bond is as bright as the sun. Together proving, no peak is too tall. Friendship is the mightiest wall. As night fell, the moon's gentle beam, the village was warmed by the twins' dream. Gabriel, Gabriella, spirits aglow, turning darkness into light's show. And my last story for the day, as I said, is Chapter 5 from the Sanctuary by Robert J. Longpre from Canada. The women are given control. 
Carrie led the way down the stairs. Three long tables had been set up in the main room, which had now been transformed into a dining room. His mother and three other women were busy keeping food on the tables for the ten people already seated at the tables. A number of empty places told Carrie there were still a few others who hadn't yet come down for breakfast. Adding up the number of settings and the number of adults, he estimated there must be at least 20 people in the cabin. He wondered how it was possible to house and feed this many people for more than just a few days. Just the food supply itself would be, quickly become an issue. Anne stared at the tables and the strangers sitting at them. Then her attention was diverted to the curved wall and the many windows looking out onto a forest and small lake. She expected to see trees and a lake or a river. Cabins were almost always placed in such a setting. It was the curved wall that struck her as odd. However, the size of the cabin was the biggest surprise. Carrie watched as his sister, Jessie, quickly made her way to one of the tables where two other girls close to her own age were already sitting. I guess we should find a place to sit. I already had some toast and coffee. Still, I could have another piece of toast or two, he grinned, as he led Anne to a table. How could you keep this place a secret, she asked, as she took a seat opposite Carrie. I told you, my dad made me keep it a secret. I didn't even know it existed before the July fishing trip. Anne studied him and believed he was telling her the truth. That only led to more questions. Why would he buy such a big cabin? Is it even a cabin? He didn't buy it, Carrie replied. He had it built this way. I don't know why with the cabin so far from civilization. It isn't just the size that blows me away. Mom told me there is Wi-Fi here and that we'll be doing online learning while we're here. I can't imagine how or why my father would have even imagined needing a place like this with all of its enhancements. With breakfast finished, both Anne and Carrie helped with the cleanup. With the extra sets of hands, the dining area was cleaned and ready for the midday meal. Off you go, Carrie's mother said as she shooed them out of the kitchen. It's time for you to register for your online learning. It was four in the afternoon when the online learning lessons ended for the day. Most of the younger children had gone out to explore the forest and lakeshore close to the cabin while the adults, excepting the two of the women who were outside with the children, gathered together in the dining area for a meeting. Both Anne and Carrie were included in the group. We'll be making runs to various towns and relatively nearby cities every two days in order to keep our supplies adequate, Dorian explained to the group of eight adults seated at the table. Ben, Carl, myself, and Carrie will be doing these runs, only two of us at a time, so it will always be two of us here at the cabin. Why can't anyone else go on these runs? asked one of the women who had helped with the breakfast and lunch. We don't want to run the risk of bringing the virus to the camp, Dorian explained. The four of us are the only ones immune to the virus. That statement was met with looks of surprise, even from Carrie's mother. Though he had been told by his father about being immune, Carrie was startled to hear this. He assumed that his mother and sister would be immune as well, at least his sister. Now he understood why his father wanted this place built. He knew this wasn't the time or the place to ask his father about that, so he kept quiet. He was pleased and a bit proud. His dad had included him in the grocery and supply runs. How do you know whether or not some of us might be immune as well? The woman pressed. You're right, Bertha. Perhaps all of us here at the table are immune. But for now, we don't know that for sure. We don't want to put anyone at risk, Doran replied. The only thing we know for sure is that everyone here is tested negative for the virus, and we want to keep it that way. It was obvious to Carrie that Bertha, the woman now had a name, 
wasn't satisfied with the answer. What Carrie didn't know was that she didn't trust men, especially men who appeared to be in control. Like the other two women, she and her children had been unable to get into a women's shelter in the city. She was grateful for the opportunity to be in a safe place, obviously one in which her abusive husband had no access or knowledge of its whereabouts. Regardless, she bristled with what she saw and understood as a man exercising his power. Dorian recognized Bertha's attitude for what it was, and the likely reasons for her distrust. Carrie saw his father perceptually nod to Carl before continuing to speak. As the owner of this shelter and the surrounding land, Bertha gave a frown that would have frozen anyone of faint heart, expecting the man who owned the property to lay down the law, put everyone in their proper place. I want to turn over the operation and control of the shelter to a committee, a committee of women. I will not sit on the committee, nor will Ben, Carl, or Carrie. Until it is safe to return to the outer world, the four of us will be too busy to be effective community leaders. Besides, Dorian added, men have been poor leaders in our communities and often in our homes. Bertha couldn't believe her ears. What Dorian had just said wasn't something she would have ever thought would be possible. Dorian had just given control of life in the cabin to the women, including her. There is just one condition, Dorian said. Here it comes, Bertha thought with perverse satisfaction. The third floor has to remain off limits to everyone but Carl, Ben, and myself. The top floor is where all of our power and technology hub is located. I can't have others accidentally putting the community in jeopardy by either accident or intent. Other than that, the committee will have full control. Oh, he hastened to add, and only the four of us will be allowed to travel outside of our sanctuary here in order to keep everyone safe. Does that include control of the finances? Carrie's mother asked, although she already knew the answer. Dorian had provided well for her and her children. However, he never questioned how the money was spent. Yes, Leah, that includes control of the finances. Ben, Carl, and I will ensure there is more than enough money to keep everything operating smoothly. The committee will not need my approval, nor Ben's or Carl's, on how the money is to be spent. And that is the last of my stories. And the end of chapter 5. So at this point, I will let you enjoy your weekend. And I hope you have a, a great one. Um, don't drink too much if you're a drinker. I myself don't celebrate New Year's here uh, in this particular case. Uh, but if you do, uh, please be safe. Guru Mahagat, thank you for listening to the show today. I hope you enjoyed it. I try to offer everyone a variety of stories and poetry each week. Maybe something to touch your heart a little bit. Disclosure for everyone. In order to read the complete stories and poems, you'll need to sign up for a subscription in Medium. If I see a link by the author on one of the stories to allow everyone to read it, I'll let you know in the newsletters. Please return again next week for another episode of Cron the Bay Has Stories and Poetry. This once-a-week podcast is available to listen to in nearly every podcast platform out there, including YouTube. Share this podcast with your friends and relations. The more the merrier. Search for Cron the Bay Has Stories and Poetry in your favorite podcast app. Subscriptions are still free. But I do have a donations tab on the RSS.com webpage and on my website at www.cronabeha.com. I appreciate any support for my efforts to bring these stories and poems to you. I hope I've achieved my goal in helping you feel like we've been sitting under the tree of life together. As a Shauna Kate, I want to continue to delight you with a story or a poem that may bring you a smile or make you think a little bit after we part for the day. 
as I say goodbye this week, I wish to leave you with this Irish blessing as you go about your day. Bless you and yours, as well as the cottage you live in. May the roof overhead be well thatched, and those inside be well matched. Schlongo foil, which means goodbye for now in Irish. <laughs>